Welcome to the Work Life Brilliance Podcast with executive coach and best-selling author, Denise Renee Green. Denise fills each episode with humor, compassion, knowledge, and pragmatism to help you transform your life. Listen in and learn how you can tame your brain, lower your stress, and become the person you were born to be. Hello, hello, my friends. You have joined the Work Life Brilliance Podcast, and I'm your host, Denise Green. And I'm really excited about today's episode. I'm going to do something different. Ever since I began the podcast, I've been thinking about what book I would love to focus on. And I'm going to focus on several, many probably over time. Uh, But today I am going to bring to you two books. And these are um, a really great matching pair on the same topic of having challenging conversations. But they approach it very differently. And I'm going to use a lot of the uh, models, learning, concepts, and a lot of the language from these books to really help immerse you in them and understand why I treasure them. So the first book is Difficult Conversations. I probably recommend this book about as much as any other book. If I had to think of one I'm recommending more right now, it's probably Success Under Stress by Sharon Melnick, and we will talk about that at some point, Um, but go get that if you haven't already. But Difficult Conversations, I describe to people as what I believe is required reading for human beings. It is written by Doug Stone, Bruce Patton, and Sheila Heen. And they are part of the Harvard Negotiation Project. So they teach at Harvard. They specialize in negotiation, which can be a very challenging conversation to have. And this book is targeted to everybody. That's why I say required reading for human beings. And on the front cover, they say, your boss, your spouse, your friends, your kids, your clients. The concepts in this book will make you more effective at conversations with anyone. It's a bestseller for great reasons. It's a little book, and that is deceptive. This book took me forever to read, not because it was boring, the opposite. Every page had such useful concepts that I had to stop. I had to stop after every useful concept and really let it sink in, think about how to use it. I didn't want to just read this like I would read a normal self-help book. I wanted to read it to actually learn and get inspired. And I love the way they've written this book. So uh, they, side by side, they will have uh, example conversations that feel very real. And the person in the conversation who's using the concepts from the book is actually being coached by the authors in the book. So you'll see them interrupt the conversation and say, oop, that didn't go so well. Let's redirect. So you are getting the benefit of their coaching live in real examples. So it makes it easier for for you to apply it to your own whatever example you've got in your head. Because when you're reading this book, you are definitely going to imagine having a conversation with somebody that you are afraid of having. Now, in a minute, we're also going to talk about another book on conversations called Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. And these two authors are two sets of authors, co-recommend each other's books. While they're on the same topic, they approach it very, very differently. 
if I had to describe it, I would say the Harvard negotiators approach it more cerebrally. So even while both of the books speak to the heart, I would say difficult speaks more to the head and fierce speaks more to the soul. So unlike um, difficult conversations, Susan Scott was a CEO coach and she has a background in literature. So she is a force to reckon with when it comes to words. And she is one of the most quotable authors I've ever come across. And I quote her often. So I'm excited to um, share with you some concepts from both of these books. So first, difficult conversations. The main learning from this book that they are trying to convey to you is that every conversation has actually three conversations going on within it. And if you don't respect and address all three conversations, the conversation will go sideways. So the first conversation they call the what happened conversation. The he said, she said, what you think, what I think. Every conversation has that. But the other story that's going on is the actual truth, the third story, the mediator's story, the neutral observer's story of what truly happened. And no one person has all of the facts. We have my my thinking about it, your thinking about it, and by the way, we both think those stories are true. And there are elements of them that are true, and there are elements of them that are judgments based on our uh, misunderstanding, and based on our emotions and uh, assumptions that we're making. So they advocate looking at the issue from the third story. And that means you have to adopt a mindset of curiosity. And if you can do that, you are going to be a million miles ahead of most people in conversations who just assume my truth is the truth and you're wrong. And then you can see how the conversation tends to go when you take that. So the what happened story is the first story. And within it, there's your truth, my truth, and the actual truth, the third story. The second conversation involved in every difficult conversation is the emotional conversation, the feelings conversation. Now, just because we don't talk about our feelings in conversation doesn't mean they're not there. And as we know... Uh, from what we know about the brain and emotions that our thoughts trigger an emotion that triggers an action. So we don't just say cruel or judgmental things uh, because we believe them. We say them because we are triggered by an emotion. So if you don't notice what emotions you are carrying into this conversation, the conversation might go in a, dif- in a direction that you don't really want it to go in. For example, if you bring anger into a conversation and you're not aware that you're bringing anger into that conversation, now I don't care if your goal is to resolve it peacefully, you are not going to show up peacefully if you don't recognize your own anger. And oh, by the way, as you probably know by now after listening to me, they are not the cause of your anger. Your thoughts about the situation are the cause of your anger. So the more you can own that, 
the more neutral and curious you can be. Now, I'm bringing in some of my own insights. They wrote these books before we knew so much about the brain and how we get triggered and how our emotions shape our actions. But they were very early about the linkage between emotions and what we bring into conversations. Okay, so the feeling story is the second story. The third story is the identity story. Now, we've talked a bit about influence and influence currencies. Everybody has an identity that they are trying to protect. Whether it's you want to be seen as powerful, or you want to be seen as competent, or you want to be seen as friendly and kind and warm. Most of us are not really aware of our identity story. We only know that sometimes we get really triggered. We call these hot buttons, we call them pet peeves, but your identity story may be completely different from somebody else. Somebody else might care about doing high quality work. And if you accidentally or intentionally insult their identity about doing high quality work, uh, they are going to get extremely defensive in the conversation. So it's really good to try and guess what somebody's identity story is and to not step on that trigger uh, unless you really want the conversation to go poorly. It's also important to know what your own identity story is. I mean, I can tell you that if somebody told me I was judgmental and unkind, I would come unraveled. I mean, that would really, really hurt me because it's part of my identity. You would think that that'd be everybody's identity, but, or at least I would think that, but that's not necessarily true. Somebody else might want to be seen as tough. Uh, that's not how I want to be seen. So knowing your own identity story, having a good hunch about somebody else's, and noticing when you do accidentally step on theirs, and coming back and recognizing their noble story. What is it that they're trying to protect? And the more you can acknowledge that sincerely, like, hey, you do really great quality work. I'm just curious about what happened in this situation where there were some mistakes. That might be a way to diffuse it. So they talk a lot about reframing your own story before you go in. And I talk a lot about upgrading and steering your thoughts and they are in that concept is instrumental in this book and let me just I'm, I'm turning to a page here let me just give you an example of what they're talking about when it comes to reframe I know you're there all right so a lot of us like I said come in with my truth well you can reframe that to be different stories you have a story about what happened I have a story about what happened and then there's this larger story that we can search for and figure out together. You can reframe accusations. Instead of telling somebody, accusing somebody of doing something, instead you can talk about their possible good intentions and the impact that it had. Instead of blaming, you can reframe to contribution, which is much more neutral and has no malintent. There was your contribution to the issue. There was my contribution to the issue. Instead of making judgments and characterizations, which you can tell you're doing that if you're using lots of adjectives and adverbs that are not really based in fact. 
Instead of that, you can talk about feelings, the way you feel about what was said exactly. Uh, instead of accusing somebody of being rude, for example, you can say, when you said X, Y, Z, um, I felt like I was uh, being accused of something, or I felt like I was being judged. And instead of thinking, what the heck is wrong with this person? You can think, what is going on for them? What could be motivating them to behave in this way? And then your brain will switch to curiosity. And one of the keys in having these successful conversations is shifting your attention from yourself to them, from self-focus to other focus. That is one of the key components of emotional intelligence. The third component of emotional intelligence is then adapting your approach based on what would work best for the other person. And they warn that just because you are using the techniques outlined in the book does not mean that somebody is going to go along. They are going to get defensive no matter how graceful you are, and then you're going to get defensive in exchange. That is just reality. That is the reality of our emotions. And when we get triggered, and when our identity story gets triggered, that doesn't mean you give up. That means you take a pause, you take the high road, and you try again. Now, you may be thinking, why do I have to do all the work? This person gets to be judgmental, gets to be immature, gets to be irrational, and I have to be the sage? And I would say, no, you don't have to. I just ask you, what results do you want in your life? What kind of relationships do you want? And yes, this is hard. If we think about the brain and how the brain wants to avoid pain and conserve energy, well, then we know why we avoid these conversations altogether or while, why we have them without any preparation, without any grace, and without any other focus, just our own I'm-going-to-get-you story. Because it takes a lot of energy. So this is optional. You don't have to be the one who's graceful in conversations, but it's so worth it to put in the effort, especially in the relationships that matter most in your life. All right, which brings me to Susan Scott's almost manifesto-like book, Fierce Conversations. Achieving success at work in life, one conversation at a time. Such a quotable book, as I mentioned. And her premise is that our work, our relationships, and our very lives succeed or fail one conversation at a time. The book is full of profound things like that that she says. Um, and some of you may notice, recall, that Susan Scott wrote the foreword to my book. Um, I am not plugging this book because she did that. I am plugging this book because it's brilliant. And that's why I asked her to do the foreword for my book, which I was so grateful for. So one of the concepts, many, many concepts that I love, and as I said, Susan has a background in literature, so she knows a lot about the etymology of words. She loves words, and she loves reading literature, and we all benefit from it. So she has a story about the word conversations. And 
I remember when I was taking her workshop, she said, um, in most languages, Latin languages, what does con mean? C-O-N, the first three words of conversations. And of course, it's with. And one of her students said, uh, my father doesn't have conversations with me. He has versations. And everybody erupted in laughter and sighed and nodded because we all have somebody in our life who we feel like talks at us instead of talking with us. And oh, by the way, we have moments when we talk at people instead of with them. And in English, con means against. We are not wanting to have versations against people. We are wanting to have conversations where we are curious, where we involve them, where we try and get their truth. So I'm just going to give you some nuggets of her language. And this is one of, I, I probably quote this line at least three times a week with my clients who are struggling to speak up in meetings without feeling like they're accusing people and without people feeling accused. And I always quote this, the person who can most accurately describe reality without laying blame will emerge the leader. I'm going to say that again. The person who can most accurately describe reality without laying blame will emerge the leader. If we can't do this, truths don't get unearthed. Problems don't get solved. If we do this inelegantly, with people feeling accused, people will blame. People will not admit fault. We have to be the person who is safe, the person who is courageous, the person who assumes good intent and is curious about where things went wrong. And related to that is this next quote. You have to get it ground truth before you can turn anything around. Now, ground truth is a military term that describes what is actually happening in the field. And the only way you can get that is by asking the people who have the boots on the ground, the front line. So in the military, it is so important to know the ground truth that they will create forums where there is no hierarchy and the people on the front lines can talk openly, openly to the highest ranking um, military people. And Susan's book is written more for an audience in leadership, even though the concepts are really great for anybody wanting to improve their relationships. Some of her chapter titles just act like beautiful quotes. So chapter two is, come out from behind yourself into the conversation and make it real. I love this. <laughs> How do we be authentic appropriately? That's another sign of executive presence and emotional intelligence. How can I actually be vulnerable and share with you my fears, my concerns? How can I not pretend to be somebody I am not in this conversation? How can I not pretend to be more confident that I am or more comfortable than I am? And she talks about how it's so rare and how we put on so many masks in our different relationships. 
And another one of her lines on this is, authenticity is not something you have, it is something you choose. And I must say, one of my favorite quotes has to do with (laughs) when you need to be a little inauthentic. And she writes that people can smell, I'm going to paraphrase here, people can smell inauthenticity from a mile away. So always be yourself, unless, of course, you're a jackass. And it's so true. If you are in a mood that puts you in jackass mode, or if your permanent mood is that you are rude and accusatory, then don't bring that. You might have to fake it a little bit uh, so that you don't bring that aspect of your personality that has become a habit and is Uh, ruining your conversations and your relationships. So I think she's tongue-in-cheek, but also saying, in truth, you need to practice nonviolent communication, even if it feels uncomfortable, until it becomes a habit. And then when you are a jackass, you need to authentically apologize for that. Here's another quote that really kind of knocked me on my butt, and that was, what are you pretending not to know. We all really know the state of our relationships, the state of our lives, but we pretend not to know because once we know, it's painful. We don't want to look at it. Now I feel like I have to do something about this relationship or about the life that I have that is not going in the direction I thought it would be going. All right, another wonderful chapter title is Be Here prepared to be nowhere else. And she's talking about specifically in conversations, but I think this is a great one for all of us multitaskers. How can I be here, prepared to be nowhere else? And she includes at the top of this chapter a quote from the author of The Experience Economy, B. Joseph Pine II. And that is, the experience of being understood versus interpreted is so compelling you can charge admission. And people really do pay. They pay therapists, they pay coaches for the experience of being understood. But if you can be that person who instead of just rushing to judgment and interpreting somebody's actions based on your own context, then you will emerge the leader. You will be somebody who people trust, who they feel safe around, they want to converse with. She talks a lot about um, trusting your gut. And one of her quotes is, our radar works perfectly. It is the operator who is in question. And this chapter on trusting your intuition, I think, is um, perhaps uh, the most challenging because There is one thing, and the the intuition she's talking about is the kind of intuition that comes from deep experience and real knowing. A lot of what people call intuition actually comes from fear, and that is not what she's talking about here. So when she says obey your instincts, she's wanting you to go deep into the truth that your brain knows and that you are afraid of looking at. She's not wanting you to go into this knee-jerk, reflexive reaction out of fear. 
And she says, there are things our gut knows long before our intellect catches on. So whether it's that manager that you interviewed with that you just got a really funny feeling about, or that relationship that you're in or thinking about going into that just doesn't feel quite right, or that house that you're touring, this one is personal for me. I remember um, before we bought our house in Oakland, um, there were so many signs that this was the wrong house. So many signs. But I was so afraid of the effort that would go into renting a house and then moving twice, and we'd already sold our house in San Francisco, that I let my fear drive that. And even though it was on a really busy street, there was no place for a child to play, um, it was so loud, the rooms were so compartmentalized, it was a very difficult house to live in, and in fact, we ended up having two cars totaled sitting parked outside our street. That's how busy, loud, narrow the street was. All the signs were there. And my intuition, if had I really listened to it, would have told me, keep looking. It would be worth the pain. Okay, here's another beautiful one. The fundamental outcome of most excuse me, the fundamental outcome of most communication is misunderstanding. Misunderstanding. And that is because we have two different brains. We have our story, your story, and then the truth. Your brain will never interpret things the way I interpret them. So just assume that there will be misunderstanding. And when you assume that, you will adapt a more curious mindset about the conversation. Because as she says, it is our context that determines how we experience the content of our lives. Two people can have similar experiences, content, but their context, how they view it, will create extremely different impressions and interpretations and outcomes. Here's another chapter title. Absolutely love this. Take responsibility for your emotional wake. And she writes that an emotional wake is what you remember after I'm gone, what you feel, the aftermath, the aftertaste, or the afterglow. How many people have you worked for in your life that left an aftertaste or an afterburn? I remember working for a leader and literally, quite literally, somebody would go home crying from the office at least once a week. It was a very difficult, challenging place to work and I'm sure there was a lot of high blood pressure, a lot of stress. Is that how you want to be remembered? I highly doubt it. And you are responsible for your emotional wake. And she writes very vulnerably, and I can totally relate to this. There was a period in my life in which I was unconscious of my speed and the wake I was leaving during my conversations with others. And if this is true for you as well, you can appreciate how challenging it is to live up to the vow of becoming more conscious of the effect our words have on others. In the face of this task, some people decide not to say anything at all to certain sensitive types. Or some decide just to let the chips fall where they may, feeling that if I'm too strong for some people, that's their problem. All right, so neither of those is a great approach, but they both take very little energy so again, what is the cost of you avoiding these conversations? 
She, along with difficult conversations, talks about avoiding trigger words, uh, including feedback, accountability, which accountability she just says basically is who's going to get thrown under the bus. That's what we hear when we hear the word accountability. And she said, do not begin your comments with truthfully or frankly or honestly, because then I'm going to wonder, were you not speaking truthfully before? And she says, when in doubt about how to speak in a conversation, ask, what would love do? Man, I don't think you can go wrong if you act like from a place of what would love do. One more chapter title, chapter seven that I just love. Let silence do the heavy lifting. And she talks about how, especially in American culture, there is a discomfort with silence. But she calls on us to remember that everybody is having a conversation in their head during that silence. It's not actually silent. And without silence, there is no space for grace to emerge. People don't have time to develop the courage or time to literally wedge their thoughts in if you don't allow the space. So if nothing else, that would be a great one to try today is asking open-ended questions and then being silent, giving them time to let their brains work and process the question. I'm going to end with her last poem in the book, and it is by Hafiz. And if you have not read Hafiz, oh my goodness, um, I recommend The Gift. It's called The Gift. It's one of the best, most famous, most respected translation of Hafiz, the Sufi poet. And Hafiz, I would say, is equal parts light, love, wisdom, and wit. And he even swears. All right, so here it is when she writes her conclusion about embracing the principles. She starts it off with this. Let your intelligence begin to rule whenever you sit with others. Using this sane idea, leave all your cocked guns in a field far from us. One of those damn things might go off. So for me, this means shift your mindset before you go into a conversation. So you use no language that feels like an attack. Instead, leave all those assumptions, all those judgments behind. And instead, bring curiosity, an assumption of good intent, and love. And I can guarantee the conversation will go better than it would if you had brought your weapons of language and assumptions. So I am excited for you to go and get the book. Do get the latest copy of Fierce Conversations because it also has her conversation models in the back. So there's a coaching conversation, there's a confrontation conversation, lots of good stuff. And in the back of Difficult Conversations, they have a checklist that will let you walk through a conversation you need to have so you feel so much more prepared and so much less emotionally triggered. Right, I hope you have enjoyed this exploration of these two amazing books, and I look forward to next time. 
Thanks for listening to Work Life Brilliance. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give us is to share this podcast with a friend. And be sure to give us some stars and a favorable review at iTunes.